You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Cases of Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, in the United States are increasing. What is the relationship between this infection and inflammatory bowel disease syndrome? How should patients be treated? How should they be evaluated? What is the best way to incorporate our understanding of C. difficile in the treatment of IBD patients? Joining us to discuss inflammatory bowel disease and C. difficile is Dr. Christian Stone, Associate Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome, Dr. Stone. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure to have you. Well, let's get right to the point. How common is C. difficile? How common is IBD? And how often do they overlap? I'll start with inflammatory bowel disease. The estimates have been that around 1 million to 1.5 million people in the United States have inflammatory bowel disease. And it's about a one-to-one ratio of ulcerative colitis to Crohn's disease, which are the two main forms of inflammatory bowel disease. And those numbers have been rather steady, maybe slightly increasing incidence of ulcerative colitis. Now, Clostridium difficile infection has been increasing rather dramatically in most all patients that are hospitalized. And what we have shown recently is that the increase in incidence of Clostridium difficile is also occurring in patients with inflammatory bowel disease with, for example, a tripling of the cases in ulcerative colitis over the past seven to eight years. Are you telling us that the incidence is growing more rapidly in IBD patients as compared to other patients hospitalized? We have to be careful with which kind of patients we're talking about. In our study, hospitalized patients here in St. Louis, we showed that patients with Crohn's disease were getting C. difficile at about the same rate as the general hospitalized patient. However, the ulcerative colitis patients were acquiring C. diff at a much higher rate. Well, that makes sense. Do you think this is just due to increased use of antibiotics in the general population and in IBD patients? Or do you think that IBD patients, for some reason, are more prone to get C. diff when they're treated with antibiotics? We don't really know the reason why IBD patients are getting C. difficile. For the same reason, we're not sure exactly why there's increasing incidence in the general hospitalized patient. But it could be related to host factors, use of immunosuppression. There are plenty of cases being described of C. difficile occurring without prior exposure to antibiotics. And so we're seeing new trends and new risk factors. So we have to keep in mind C. difficile much more often than than previously. Well, for the general practitioner, we always assume that there's been antibiotic exposure before C. difficile. Are you telling us that that may not necessarily be true now? That's right. Like I said, there's plenty of instances of C. difficile occurring without any known prior antibiotic use, and especially in the IBD population where it's thought that the use of immunosuppressant drugs lower the ability to respond to infection. That may be one of the reasons why C. difficile is occurring more often in IBD patients. 
Do you see this more in steroid-dependent patients or non-dependent patients, those on immunomodulators, on biologics? Is there any pattern that we can maybe get a hint at what's going on? Well, unfortunately, we don't have that data yet. In fact, I'm working on a study looking at the medication use specifically to see if there is a relationship of certain medications causing more risk for C. difficile. So hopefully we'll have an answer to that in the next few months. Guess a hypothesis or guess a conclusion? Well, my hypothesis is that the greater the degree of immunosuppression, the higher the risk for C. difficile. So we're hoping to show that there may be an increasing risk as you add more and more immunosuppression, but really we're not sure. So hopefully we'll get that answer. Let's go on to the diagnosis of C. difficile in general patients or non-IBD patients and in IBD patients. What are the best tests or what tests are you using that you think would be applicable for our listenership? Well, there are many tests available to detect C. difficile. Most of them involve detection of the toxin, either A or B or both. The problem is that wherever we practice, we are at the mercy of whatever test has been adopted by the hospital. So although there may be five or six different tests for C. difficile, the vast majority of testing is in the form of the enzyme immunoassay, or the ELISA test, for toxin A and or B. This is by far the most common uh, test, but unfortunately it can uh, lack sensitivity and specificity in certain situations. So we have to always use our clinical judgment when deciding whether a, a positive test is really clinically meaningful or not. So are you saying you worry about false positives more than false negatives? I think both can occur. The sensitivity can be rather high initially, but what I've found is that there are sometimes too many tests being performed for C. difficile, and that's when you run into false positives. So there are studies, for example, in in the infectious disease literature showing that the testing for C. difficile shouldn't occur on a daily basis, for example, three days in a row just as a standard recommendation. Rather, we should test whenever we clinically suspect C. difficile, then wait a day or two, and if the clinical suspicion is still very high, then we can test again, but we shouldn't be doing it routinely as has been adopted in many places. Because not all hospitals use the same test, do you want to just touch on some of the other tests for our, so we are complete in our, our discussion? Yeah, so the ELISA test is the most common. There are other tests. You know, the gold standard may be considered the method of incubating a sample on a monolayer of cells looking for cell rounding. That's called a cytotoxicity assay. But that test has fallen out of favor because of the 24 to 48-hour 40, turnaround time and the cost. And then another potential gold standard is, is simply culture of the stool. But again, that's going to take a week or longer, and, and most of us are not going to want to wait that long for a result. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Golsing, and joining me today to discuss IBD and C. difficile is Dr. Christian Stone, Associate Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Let me just turn our attention again to data acquisition, if you will. Is it good enough for somebody just to write an order C. diff test? Is there any special handling or anything that leads to false negatives because of improper collection? 
Not that I'm aware of. As long as the stool sample is liquid, then it is eligible for testing for C. difficile. I'm not aware of any particular features that would increase the false negative or false positive rate, although that's being studied. For example, some think that if there's blood in the stool, that that may increase the false positive rate of testing, which would be, of course, important in, in IBD. But again, we're still waiting for data on that. All righty. Well, great. Are there any other pitfalls in the diagnosis of C. difficile that you'd like to share with our listenership? Well, the biggest problem in IBD is the ulcerative colitis patient who gets admitted with severe colitis. This is the most challenging clinical scenario because these patients present, obviously, with diarrhea, sometimes bloody. And the presentation, of course, could indicate an exacerbation of their underlying colitis, but also it could be C. difficile complicating the colitis. So those patients are frequently going to be tested for C. difficile, and if they turn to be, turn out to be positive for C. difficile, then, of course, you're going to treat that patient. But the difficulty is in determining how much of the patient's current symptoms are due to C. difficile versus the underlying colitis or a combination of both. So one error that I've seen in treatment is that when the C. difficile is positive, that the patient is given flagellar or vancomycin routinely for therapy and doesn't really improve. And the assumption is made that the C. difficile has not been properly treated and may continue to test positive for C. difficile. But in fact, what's happening is that the C. difficile is probably well-controlled and the underlying ulcerative colitis is not being addressed medically. In patients who come in with so-called flares, as you're describing, or, or severe disease state, do you treat for both? Not as a rule. We would rather first try to rule out C. difficile, again, test when they first present to the hospital. And we've shown, for example, that two-thirds of patients will test positive within the first 48 hours, which indicates that it was probably a community-acquired infection and not nosocomial. But we will test first, and then if it's positive, then, of course, treat. And there's some debate as to how to treat, but generally speaking, we'll use flagell or, or vancomycin. So we wait until a positive test before treating. We usually don't treat empirically. What about for the IBD? Are you going to empirically treat the IBD as a flare with either corticosteroids or other agents? Well, we want to rule out infection first, so we'll do testing for C. difficile, and frequently in the ulcerative colitis patients, we will also test for CMV infection. So if those infections are not present, then of course we're going to then proceed with induction therapy for the colitis, and that might be with steroids or biologics. You've already mentioned the two treatments, the two most common treatments, metronidazole and vancomycin. Why don't you tell us and share with us a little bit of your expertise in treating with these two agents? Sure. Again, in the IBD population, well, there's some debate as to whether any patient who has underlying colitis and developed C. difficile, whether that patient should be considered a severe case of C. difficile from the onset. And so some have advocated going straight to vancomycin whenever, for example, ulcerative colitis patients test positive for C. difficile. Now, we really don't have data to back that up, that recommendation of going straight to vancomycin. So what I do is I start with metronidazole, maybe 500 milligrams three times a day for the initial treatment of a UC patient with C. difficile. Now, if you don't see improvement rather rapidly, 
then you should consider switching to vancomycin. But again, we have, again, the difficulty of deciding whether the exacerbation of the underlying colitis should not also be treated simultaneously with the treatment of recidive seal. All right. Let's put to rest the uh, metronidazole. You use 500 three times a day. And how long do you treat them for? They should probably receive a course of around 10 to 14 days. And if it's the first incidence of C. difficile, you can probably stop after that. If it's a case of recurrent C. difficile, then you may want to taper the dose of metronidazole over a month's period to try to prevent uh, another recurrence. Well, I'm going to take the prerogative of a patient I saw and uh, ask you a specific question about metronidazole. Can you develop C. difficile as a result of being treated with metronidazole? Yeah, just about every antibiotic has been shown to put you at risk for a C. difficile infection. The resistance to metronidazole varies from study to study. It's been reported as low as, you know, 3 or 4%, but then as high as 20 or 30%. So it really probably shows a variation in different parts of the country. But we do need to keep that in mind that there may be resistance to the metronidazole and that use of that drug may also precipitate a C. difficile. What about vancomycin dosing? And same question, can you develop C. difficile when in patients treated with vancomycin? So dosing generally will start at 125 milligrams four times a day. For more severe cases, you'll want to ramp that up to 250 or even higher. Uh, the combination of metronidazole and vancomycin may also be used in select cases where you think there's severe disease. I have not personally seen a case of C. difficile thought to be secondary to vancomycin use, but I imagine there are reports on it. Anytime you change the gut flora, you may tip the scales in favor of the uh, C. difficile starting to overgrow and cause infection. IV versus PO, any advantages to the IV formulation? No, in fact, you want it to be PO. The Most of the PO dose stays in the GI tract, and we want to deliver that uh, vancomycin to the lumen of the colon, so it's important to use PO. In the case of metronidazole, you actually can use either IV or PO. I really do appreciate spending this time with you. I'd like to thank my guest from Washington University School of Medicine, Dr. Christian Stone. Dr. Stone, we really do appreciate you coming in and spending your time as our guest on this week on GI Insights. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.